It's like watching this slow motion car crash. This dude has a billion dollar company on his hands, but he's just not running it correctly. He basically had this 800,000 Bitcoins was like stolen over the course of like two years and he just never checked his cold wallet. It just makes no sense. Okay, so Jed McCaleb, this one is for the nerds, that's for sure. <laughs> Would you agree? Is that fair? Uh, that's fair enough. That's fair, okay. So Jed is somewhat of a cryptocurrency legend. He's been involved in some of the most high-profile organizations in crypto, including Mt. Gox, Ripple, and of course, his own current rocket ship, Stellar Lumens and its foundation. Or is there a different way of saying it? I would just say Stellar.org. Stellar.org. Yeah. Done. Much better. Yeah. From the horse's mouth. <laughs> For those of you who don't really get what crypto is all about, today, apart from covering an amazing story of entrepreneurship, we can hopefully get one of the world's leading lights in the industry to simplify it. So this one's for you, mum, because God knows I haven't managed to break it down for you at all. And no matter how hard I try, you still don't get it. So this is the mum test for you, Jed. Before all his crypto success, Jed was the co-founder of Peer-to-Peer eDonkey. So this episode is brought to you from Stellar's HQ inside San Francisco's Hayes Valley. But your journey started in Little Rock, Arkansas. So has clearly been quite a journey. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I was actually born in Fayetteville, which is another city in Arkansas. But yeah, close enough. I am so close to getting my research right. Like close. <laughs> like, geographically, I'm, I'm only like one factor. Yeah, I mean, off it doesn't matter if you're outside the US for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Okay, well, I should have just gone with Arkansas and I knew that I could have got that one right. Okay, so firstly, welcome to the show, Jed. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And uh, a quick fire round just to get us started. So crypto or surfing? They both have their strengths and weaknesses, you know. It's funny that you asked that. It's one of the things I've kind of struggled with through my whole life is like you, whether you want to go and achieve something like super big and impactful or whether you just kind of want to go chill on a beach. And uh, there's benefits to both. And uh, it's kind of like a choice of whether you want to be really happy or whether you want to like see a lot of change in the world. And like ultimately, I decided that I just want to actually like affect a lot of things in the world rather than just go chill on a beach. It's so. hard to do that on yourself. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Okay, so this one should be a bit easier for you, but San Francisco or Arkansas? Well, I definitely like living in San Francisco much better. Arkansas is a great place to grow up, but there's not a lot going on there when you go back. Yeah, so. okay, fair enough. And uh, cats or dogs or neither? I like animals. I don't like to. I like. I feel like the idea of owning an animal is pretty weird. Okay. So to be honest, yeah, so fun. yeah, yeah. So you've but, got your own pet in the form of your cryptocurrencies. So sure, yeah, yeah. you've got your hands full. Uh, meditating or extreme sports. Or neither. Obviously, like I surf and like do other things like that, which are pretty meditative. Uh, I don't actually just sit down and meditate, although I probably should. And I've just come from the calm office, as I was mentioning. Oh, so that's yeah, a, it's, a good job to position. It's on your mind. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. all sitting there, zenning out. No, I, I used to try a bit in high school, but I haven't in a long time. Okay, and finally, CTO or CEO? I'm much better suited as a CTO. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not good at all the like the people things that a CEO has to do. Okay, yeah. fine. So you spend your time and earn your stripes to know what you're best at. Yeah. Okay. So thank you very much for answering. Right. So before we get started on the biography of our first ever crypto guest on the show, the journey of Jed, as we can call it, uh, let's start with a prologue. So an explanation for the mums out there. Can you simply explain cryptocurrency, the field that you've become an expert in? Yeah. So I think the key innovation and the thing that makes this exciting for people is that there's 
what these systems do is make a, a public record that everybody can see, but no one can change arbitrarily, right? So there's like a certain set of rules that allow you to change this public record. And what this allows is, is parties that are otherwise don't know each other or, or don't have a formal relationship with each other or maybe don't even trust each other can now transact because there's this thing in the middle that they can both rely on, right? Bitcoin was the first example of this, and they used it for making this kind of new currency called a Bitcoin uh, that could be this global currency that there's no central issuer for, and that has all these cool implications. But fundamentally, they're able to do this because there is this thing called the Bitcoin blockchain that essentially forms this public record that everyone can see, but no one can change arbitrarily, right? And then there's been all kinds of permutations on that same theme uh, since then, uh, Stellar being one of them, where it's not just a currency, but you can hold other kinds of information there. But still, the fundamental innovation is that that you have this trustless or People call it trustless, but really it's this thing in the internet that you can everybody can trust because no one else can modify it. Yeah, okay. So different to banks in the big way that you can trust it. Right. People trust banks, but there's still a central party that could change the thing. Not everybody trusts the same set of people. And not everyone trusts banks. Right. That's the other thing. Do you trust banks? I have some money in banks, so yeah, to some degree I trust them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I guess you're kind of stuck with that, right? Okay. Um, go back to chapter one. So growing up in Arkansas, like you said earlier, you know, it's a nice place to grow up, probably a little on the chill side. Yeah. Give us some idea. What was your childhood like? My very early childhood, uh, I, I still am amazed that my mom did this. We grew up in the woods without any running water or electricity for like the first few years of my life. Exactly what you expect from an yeah. internet entrepreneur. <laughs> and I guess at some point she realized that was a very hard thing to do and, and moved into the city. So growing up was just, I was, I'm an only child. So it's basically just me and my mom. I spent a lot of time alone, mainly like playing with Legos. At some point, uh, one of my mom's friends had one of these early computers and he basically asked me to describe a video game. And I described like this simple, like Atari-esque game. And then I came back like a month later and he had built the thing. And after that, I realized, oh, wow, it's possible to make these things. I got to do this. And so after that, I was like super excited about programming and would go over to a friend's house and like try to program and eventually got my own computer. And then that's been my trajectory since then. Okay. So what, like what age did you leave home? Was that uh, to go to Berkeley? Yeah, to, to go to 18 when I went to school. Okay, fine. So you're 18, you've gone to UC Berkeley, and then you dropped out after a year? A semester and a half. A semester and a half. Okay, <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, nice and early. Yeah. What was it that uh, made you realize it definitely wasn't for you? I mean, obviously, that's pretty normal around here. Like most of your heroes, I'm sure, all dropped out. But... Yeah, I had gone originally for physics, and I realized I didn't want to be a physicist. I already knew how to program, like I mentioned. And so I was like, well, I can just go do this, right? So uh, in retrospect, I actually think it was kind of a mistake. I think the important part of school is not what they're teaching you per se, but just being around a lot of other smart people and being ha- and like having that network and like being able to grow from that. So I, I kind of missed a lot of that. Luckily, some of my best friends from high school also went to really good schools, so I just kind of moved where they were and ended up having that same environment. But I could imagine a scenario where I just went back to Arkansas and kind of floundered. But you know. Where did they go? Did they all go to San Francisco afterwards? No, most most of my friends are on the East Coast. So I spent a lot of time after I left Berkeley. I moved around a bunch. I uh, came back here during the first dot com. Then I spent a lot of time on the East Coast, like Boston and then New York. Okay. So was E Donkey your first venture after you left university? No, I did a bunch of other things. So I, I uh, when I left university, it was the internet was just getting started. It wasn't really a big thing yet. I did some kind of like ill fated projects with you know my friends and. You know, this thing called Watson Software, which is this crazy thing for stockbrokers that 
I don't know. Anyway, but <laughs> it didn't work. And then uh, I made some some games and things like this. Eventually, I ended up making Edonkey, but that was you know I left school in probably ninety five, and that wasn't until like ninety nine. So there. okay, fine. So you'd had like four years in the wilderness trying to build stuff. Yeah. not sure if it was going to work. So you'd gone through like the ups and downs. Yeah, mainly downs. So that was all downs, but oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> but it was fun. It was a lot of experience. Where did you move to for Edonkey? Was that on the East Coast? Uh, I started it in uh, when I was living in San Francisco. That was like 98, 99. Yeah, and then I moved to New York in 2001. Okay. And where did the name come from? Was that all about? Oh, uh, so at that time, Napster was super popular and like all these file sharing things were showing up in the New York Times and other renowned publications. Uh, when I was looking for a domain name, one of these sites suggests I, I was putting in something and they just were suggesting things and it, they would always just stick an E or 2000 on the end of it. And I was like, well, this would be funny to, if this name ever shows up in the New York Times. So Did it show up in the New York Times? It did eventually, yeah. Oh, yes. So I got, nice. I got my wish. Very good. <laughs> okay, so tell us a little bit about eDonkey. So, um, you know, you've now got a history of rocket ships, so much so that your icon for Stanner is a rocket ship. <laughs> Do you consider this a rocket ship? Is that how it felt at the time after four failures? Uh, you started this in 2000, right? And then... In 99. But... In 99, okay. Like I said, I'm, I'm almost exactly yeah, right. I, it's not your fault. It's the internet. It says it wrong. So. <laughs> okay. Well, obviously, we will correct the internet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you started in 99, and... Um, was it by 2004 it had really blown up? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think it was ever the most popular by people. It was the most popular by uh, bandwidth because it was really good for large files. Right. So, um, yeah, but it, but so no, sort pretty of like quickly we transfer. Yeah, so so pretty quickly, even when I was in San Francisco, like a few months after I launched it, it, it had already gotten popular, and it was pretty clear that it was going to be a thing. I, it was time to start hiring people, so I moved to New York to do that rather than stay here in the Bay Area. So, and is that just because you found it too competitive here? It was just more personal. I was like tired of living in San Francisco. My friends were all living in New York, so I was also like twenty three or something. It's more fun to be there. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Uh, there's actually women in New York. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this is uh, the, the unsaid. Uh, Especially point. back then in ninety nine, there was uh, like zero women. Okay, fine. And now there's one. Yeah. Now there's okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, so talk to us about eDunky. Like, do you do you look back and reflect on it at all, or is it just so long ago that you're like, well, I mean, it was just like a thing. And a passing moment. Yeah, no, I mean, every once in a while, I, you know, I think back to it. It's it was a fun time. Uh, it was a really cool problem to solve. Um, making a system like eDonkey, it, it's not like making a normal program because it, it has to interact with all the other copies of itself out there in the world. So it's like this weird system thing that it's like it feels very organic uh, because there's like different versions out there running that are all communicating with each other and different tweaks to the protocol change the people's behavior and the way that like all of a sudden file speeds get slower or faster if you like change certain things it's yeah it's a kind of a cool process If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. 
Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Moving on after Redonkey, right? So this is this is now when? 2004, 2005? Like, why did it stop? We shut it down in 2005 or six. And what was the reason behind that? Eventually, there was a Supreme Court case, Grokster case, the deciding like, um, like kind of the, the legality of peer-to-peer file sharing stuff. And after that, then the recording industry like sent us a cease and desist letter, like, and we're like we were going to start coming after us. Uh, you know, honestly, I think we probably would have won if we had fought it. But at that point, we were tired of doing it, and it was a bit, it would have been a long legal battle. LimeWire actually did fight them, and I think it took them like ten years or something. So it, it was just time to cut, move on. So we just we shut it down and went to other things. Take us through the process of going to other things. Did you take a year off? Did you go searching for things? Did you go surfing? Like, what did you do? Let's see. I kind of thought that maybe I didn't want to program anymore. Uh, I. Did take some time off, messed around. I thought I would want to get into like biofuel, so I built this like butanol lab in my girlfriend's apartment that she wasn't very happy about. I still have all these like crazy test tubes and stuff. But then like I ended up like finding other projects that I wanted to work on, and that, that's actually during this kind of exploratory sabbatical is when I made the first Mount Gox that was actually for trading magic cards. Then I decided I wanted to make an online game, and I made that. Uh, I started that with somebody else. And that, that was Magic the Gathering. Like, no, no, online. that was no, that, no. it. Was this kind of massively multiplayer online game? It's a combination of kind of like Magic and Starcraft. It's like a mix between these two. It's still probably my favorite game, but it's just very hard to get traction in the game space. So, yeah, hard to get traction in the game space. And yeah, let's talk about what you're about to get onto. Yeah. So, obviously, a fan of Magic the Gathering. Yeah, it's a good game. It's a good game. I guess like you saw an interesting opportunity, right? So you started a trading exchange yeah. for Magic the Gathering. Yeah, it was never supposed to be a big thing. It was just basically I during, after Enoki shut down, I had more free time. So I was like, well, what's I started playing Magic Online just to see what it was like. And I was like, this is kind of janky. There needs to be a way to like trade these cards. And I was like, okay, I'll build this little interface to trade the cards. It wasn't supposed to be a big enterprise. And so what was your original insight in terms of where I'm trying to get to is did people start paying you in Bitcoin and then you were like, oh, okay, there's an opportunity here. Like how did that... No, this is, this is pre-Bitcoin. This is like 2007 or something, yeah. So this is in 2007, but by 2010, yeah. according to my almost always <laughs> right research, you basically created it as Magic the Gathering online trading exchange, better known as Mount Gox. Right. And that became the largest Bitcoin exchange in the world. So basically what happened is that that online game that I mentioned, it wasn't really working out. We were winding that down and then I was read, I came across this article about Bitcoin and got super excited about it. I've always been into distributed systems and, and ways to kind of democratize 
access to things or like reduce concentrations of power. And clearly, a system like Bitcoin would do that. So I got super excited about it. And at that point, there was no real way. There was no real exchange. So people would like buy and sell on the forum and stuff like that. There was it was like pretty hard to buy and sell Bitcoin. And I wanted to get some Bitcoin, so I was like, "Well, you know what this system needs is obviously an exchange." So then I sat down and built what became Malcox. So okay, so casual. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's just Malcox, but we'll get into that. So, look, I mean, you're obviously aware of this yourself. But obviously, Malcox is now probably most famous, sadly, for, like, for the worst for news, the huge blow up. Be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So for those that don't know, Malcox is best known in the crypto community and um, as I guess a warning to many other industries in general. But uh, as the greatest ever hack of theft of Bitcoins in history, with 850,000 Bitcoins being stolen, which at the time were valued at 450 million dollars. Is that part correct? I don't know the exact numbers. This is all after my time there. Yeah, so, so, but yeah. yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So, like you said, so at the, by this point, you'd sold the company. Yeah. So, I, again, like I started Malcox basically just because I wanted to buy Bitcoin and it, it seemed like a cool thing to learn the system, like to, as a way to like learn what Bitcoin is all about. Um, and, it got pretty popular because there was a bunch of other people that wanted to buy Bitcoin and, and sell it too. Turns out there's other Jeds out there. Well, not other Jeds, but you know. But you know, but Bitcoin was just starting to get more popular, right? It's it's an idea that kind of was starting to catch hold, right? But you know, it's not it's not the kind of company I like to run. Like it's I usually like something with more technical challenge than that. So I, I never really intended to run it long term. You know, I probably only ran it for like you know five or six months, and then found uh, Mark Capellas. Uh, to take it over, right? And and unfortunately, at that time in Bitcoin's history, you know, it's just a very different world back then. Like when I started it, it was Bitcoin was worth like a penny, and you know, by the time Mark took it over, I think it was like twenty cents or something like that. So it was just it's just a very different community and world. And yeah, so I mean, it's unfortunate that Mark is the one that eventually that I sold it to, but I don't know, it is what it is. So for someone who um, had started it. Did you get any backlash personally on anything like that? I mean, did, did you? Yeah, I mean, I still get backlash today. I mean, people still like blame me for the thing. Like, I guess maybe they don't realize that I had nothing to do with it anymore, or I don't know. It's pretty frustrating. But so, so what was it like on the outside? Like, what were you doing at the time when when this actually happened? Had you already moved on to Ripple by that point? Um, well, it was a series of things. It wasn't just one thing. Like, even like even a few months after he took it over, there was a pretty big incident. And just the way he handled it, it at that point, it was clear to me that this dude just doesn't really know what he's doing. And I got pretty concerned. And like, I was trying since then for like years after that, trying to get him to like get somebody else to come help him run it. He was just very hard to deal with and would never like listen to my advice or anything. So uh, it was just super frustrating to watch it. It's like watching this slow motion car crash where I'm like, this dude has a billion dollar company on his hands, but he's just not running it correctly. And like the way he did run it was even worse than what I was imagining. Like he basically had this 800 million or 800,000 bitcoins was like stolen from him over the course of like two years. And he just never checked his like uh, his cold wallet. It just makes no sense, you know? So the whole thing was pretty frustrating. So. But what were you? So this is over a period of two years, like you say. So what were you doing after this then? So like you've obviously got your bug by this point. You're like, fuck, I yeah. love this industry. I yeah. can't stop thinking about it. So what was the next thing? Yeah. So after that, I, uh, you know, I think Bitcoin's this awesome innovation and this really cool idea. But the the mining process has always been kind of a I don't know a thorn in my side for it. You know, it's like it seems like a, a pretty fundamental issue, right? Um, Basically, basically, with Bitcoin, it takes like billion, literally billions of dollars a year to like secure the network, and this seems unnecessary to me. Like, so basically, after after Mt. Gox, after I sold Mt. Gox, I started thinking of other ways to 
solve this same kind of consensus problem that Bitcoin is trying to solve. It's so essentially Bitcoin's innovation is it solves what's called the double spend problem. Like you can have this digital representation of value and you have a way of knowing that you've sent it to this one person. So you won't send it to the same person again or a different person again. Right. Uh, nobody really knew how to solve this problem prior to Bitcoin, but once Bitcoin solved it, it got people thinking, well, Hey, maybe there are other ways to solve this same consensus issue. And, and that kind of led to the design of what became ripple. So, Let's go through Ripple then, because you know that's um, become one of the largest cryptocurrencies in the world. Um, you started it with a few other people, as I understand it. Well, I started it by myself. I, I brought on uh, a few other people that were in kind of at going to like Bitcoin meetups there. So David Schwartz and Arthur Brito uh, like joined me like pretty early. Like basically, I had the idea, and I was like, I didn't really want to program it, so I like brought some people on to help me work on it, um, and then. We were kind of going for maybe like six months, and then and then in parallel to this, I was like, again, like I'm usually like on the technical side of things, and usually like bring in uh, someone to help be like CEO. So I started looking for someone to do that. I eventually found Chris Larson, uh, who came in, and then and then we actually like incorporated and, and got started. How did the first year or so go then? I mean, you talked about the first six months you went out to raise institutional funding, or how did you really get off the ground with it? The initial like seed money came from, from two people in the Bitcoin world, uh, and then then yeah, once once uh, Chris came on board, we went to just normal VCs and raised money. Um, we didn't raise a huge round right off the bat. It was that, at that point people didn't truly really know what to make of cryptocurrency. It was very unclear what what it was going to do. Can you roughly remember how much you raised? I don't remember. It's probably not public either, but maybe three million or something like that. Maybe less. So decent ROI very quickly for them eventually. Yeah, they all did pretty well. <laughs> um, one of the unfortunate things is that, like, basically in working with Chris, the relationship was just not working out. He was not really the person I wanted to build a company with, for like a variety of reasons, and uh, you know, like there's like ethical differences and all this kind of stuff. But it just was very unpleasant to work with him. So. We tried to work out various scenarios where you know we actually tried to sell the company and all this kind of stuff, but things just eventually got untenable. So I just I said, okay, fine, you guys run it. I'm going to go do something else. So so I kind of left it in their hands. So what was the um, what was the focus for Ripple for our listeners? Because I mean, I'm leading you on to <laughs> the uh, the story of Stellar, obviously. Yeah. But you know, they as I understand it, they had a specific banking B two B focus, and obviously Stellar is the exact opposite as the B two C focus. Yeah. But can you just give us a bit of an idea about like the key insights there, and where you saw the opportunity that led you on to Stellar at the point where you left? I, I didn't. I didn't leave Ripple and immediately start Stellar. I took about nine months or a year off. Probably I was wanting to do something completely different, but the idea is just still so so compelling, and I just didn't feel like Ripple was really executing very well on it. And I realized a few things in like setting up Ripple that we needed to do differently. Namely, like I think I think a technology like this really needs to be set in a nonprofit in the same way that if you imagine the internet created by a for-profit company, we would just be in a different world. It probably maybe wouldn't have gotten traction, right? Like it needs to be this open, neutral thing that everyone can kind of participate in. Um, so when we set up Cell Development Foundation, we set it up as a nonprofit. The other big thing is that with both of these systems, all the currency, all the coins exist in the first place, like right when the network starts. So one of the big mandates of SDF is that it has to distribute the vast majority of the lumens to the world in various ways, right? And it's important because you can't really guarantee this at the network level. Like Bitcoin, like the distribution is tied in with the mining process. So, so you know that the coins are going to get out there in a certain way. So we kind of did the, the next best thing is like kind of guaranteed at the legal level where there's no one that can really abscond with these things. That they're, they're, there's nothing you can do but give them out. And you're kind of beholden to give them out because it's in the charter of the thing, right? So, so, so that's what we did. And I think that's pretty important as well, just because 
if you're trying to build this new financial system and then all of a sudden there's one company that owns like 90% of the wealth from the thing, it's just bizarre, right? So, so I think it's critical that you kind of spread this around. Like ideally we'd give some to every single person on the planet. I mean, that's hard to do in practice, but we're, we're trying to do approximations of that essentially. That's like the, as you've explained very eloquently yourself, like so different to how Ripple's been created. Do you ever like go back and talk to them about, you know, they've become... Is it the fourth biggest cryptocurrency in the world? Uh, I mean, I think they're the second now. I mean, it depends on how you evaluate yeah. these things, but I think they're second, second now. Today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah today. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, good point. They weren't yesterday. That's right. not no, crazy. They yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and they might not be when this comes out. Who knows? Um, do you look at that and just think that that's almost, in a way, like fundamentally, like it's something to be incredibly proud of and really galling all at the same time? I, it's not galling to me. I really don't spend that much time thinking about Ripple. I mean, I think, I think ultimately all this stuff in the middle is. Basically, this world is so chaotic right now in, in the cryptocurrency world, and these things are going up and down, and no one really knows what they are. Like people put billions of dollars into th- these protocols that absolutely do not work. So, like, like all this stuff is going to get shaken out over the next five years. And I just think what's on the list now just doesn't even matter for the long term. So few of these projects work technically. Actually, like if you were a computer scientist and you went through there and tried to say, like, does this thing actually work? you'd be shocked at like how few of them actually work, right? So to me, it's just like noise. So before we move on to uh, a little bit more about Stella, give us your top five cryptocurrencies that you actually admire and respect from a technologist's point of view. I mean, I like Bitcoin. I like um, Stellar, obviously. I like Zcash. I haven't spent a lot of time looking around to see what else is is like um, sound. So I, I would say of the of the of the things that I know, those three seem the most viable to me. And have you ever had interest in and lost interest in Ethereum, or you never? Um, I think Ethereum is a cool idea. I, I think um, if they manage to solve some scalability stuff, I think it'll be it'll be pretty awesome. But if they don't do that, then it'll be hard to see how that'll go beyond one successful application. Um, but I, I mean, I definitely like the idea of Ethereum. All right. So coming back on to Stella, so we can get a little bit more focused on this. So uh, take us through the journey of Stella. So what year was it started? What have you achieved in that time? How many employees do you have? Like, what's your like market cap today? Which of course would be incredibly different to market cap tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, just give us some highlights so we actually know where we're at. On the where story. we are. So we started about four and a half years ago. Uh, uh, it was. Basically, myself and Joyce Kim were the the co-founders of it. When we launched, we had this pretty awesome launch. It was like you know on Hacker News, lots of people were interested in it. It was pretty exciting, and we did kind of what I said originally, where we were starting to give away these small amounts of lumens to as many people as possible. So we were getting like a million signups a month, which is pretty exciting. We launched on the on the Ripple code base because it's open source. So we're like, this kind of system is what I want to work on, but I wanted to fix some of the governance issues and how they're distributing the coins and stuff like that. So we launched on their code base. Um, and the problem is it doesn't actually scale that well, at least back then. Maybe they fixed this stuff at this point. It's been a lot of years. So but back then uh, I had like these huge scalability problems where once you had like millions of accounts. Uh, the nodes would get super, super slow and go out of sync and all this kind of stuff. And it just led to all these problems. So we kind of realized that this was just really untenable. And the consensus algorithm also has like some pretty fundamental problems. And so we just rewrote everything, right? And so that took about two years really to do. And so that was kind of a, we weren't planning to do that. So that was kind of a hard, rough patch where we're like, okay, now we got to rebuild this thing. And had you personally funded the the experiment in that time? Uh, No, so it was originally uh, funded by Stripe. Uh, They gave us a loan to get started 
Patrick Collison, who is the CEO of Stripe. He's also very interested in cryptocurrency stuff. They, I mean, obviously, they know payments really well, and they have this problem where they want to be able to like send money and receive money from all over the world. And that's just really hard to do in the way payments work today. So they can imagine a system where Stellar is, is prevalent, where like it would be much, much easier for them. So he's interested for that reasons and for, for a few others as well. So they, they give us the, the original funding. Is that public, what the original funding was? Three million, yeah. Oh, that was three million. Yeah, yeah. So we, we built a team, but expecting that we wouldn't have to rebuild everything, we kind of blew through that because that only gets you so far, with it, especially here in Silicon Valley. It's uh, three salaries. Yeah, it's about three salaries. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was, it was also cryptocurrency itself was having the kind of this winter during this time. So it was kind of this dark period, but, but, uh, Eventually, we made it through, and we we made this really solid new network. And then we started going out there doing the other hard piece of work is like getting people on this network, right? Because all of these, and I think this is why. I mean, people have been talking about cryptocurrency for eight years now, and we still haven't seen like wide adoption or like really that much use. And I think the reason why is because almost all of them depend on these pretty heavy network effects. Like they're they're only useful if like a bunch of other people are using them, right? And so. Before you get that, the network effects just really, really work against you, and it's really hard to break through that, right? And I think people underestimate like how challenging that is. And so then the year or so after we had the network live again, we just started to try to break those, right? So uh, we did a lot of uh, partnership activity in Africa and uh, Southeast Asia, um, and eventually we started to get a little traction. Uh, you know, we we got a few like remittance companies, MTOs on the network, and then we kind of realized that there's a lot of Basically, every financial institution we would talk to needed like service and support. They needed like some like Red Hat type organization to like help them through this process, right? And that isn't really what SDF was set up to do. So we set up this kind of sister organization that that uh, that could provide that, right? And we set that up as a for profit. So uh, that's called Lightyear, and we set that up about a year ago. Um, and since then, it's just become exponentially easier. Like each remittance partner that adds onto the network, it just becomes easier and easier to add the next because the network gets that much more compelling. So I think we're in a really good spot now. It's really exciting. Where I think we're about to go over this uh, this like tipping point where our like people are just going to start joining. So that, that's what we're pretty excited about right now. So that is a strong buy signal yeah. straight from the founder. <laughs> well, I don't How know unusual. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't do that. You would never do that. But as someone who uh, who personally got into Stella two years ago, I hope it, I hope it is for sure. So it's been a tough year in crypto. So let's talk about that. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, I mean... And, and not, and not, of course. I mean, what was crazy was just before it. Yeah, but, I would say the crazy thing is yeah, the sure. end of 2017. Like, yes. that was crazy. Well, let's, let's talk about all of it. So, you know, there's one thing being uh, someone who, on my side and, and my friends, because we work in yeah. tech, we all got in pretty early. Yeah. Early for us, by the way, is like 2012, 2013. It's not early, early, but it's, it's early for England. Sure. And the prices were very reasonable. And then it was easy to get extremely excited and to speak in... Uh, Common folk talk and hodl, yeah, which is hold spelled incorrectly for those of you that don't know. But then you know it just collapsed, and yeah. so just it'd be great to hear about it from the inside. Like, what was your office vibes like for starters? Like, let's just talk about that. We really don't focus on the price that much. I mean, obviously, it's you can't ignore it completely, but most people here are focused on the long term. They know that this is like a year years long journey. Like, it's not going to be this thing where. You know, it goes up a ton, and we just cash out or something like that. Like it, it's going to take a while to make these things real because we've always been focused on trying to make people actually use these things, and building a business just takes a long time. So, definitely, the the rise up was 
awesome for us because it just allowed us to do a lot more than what we were able to do. We were very cash constrained before. Uh, and, and now we have a lot more flexibility and can like hire a bunch more people and do a bunch of stuff. And it coming back down, it didn't really impact us, right? Because it's still just so much higher than what it was in like the beginning of 2017. So it's still, for anyone who's been in the world for a long time, it's it, we're still way positive than what it was before. So if anything, I think definitely some of the projects are just way overvalued still. I'm just assuming a lot of your colleagues probably have a variety of different cryptocurrencies yeah. as well, right? Just on a less like purpose-driven ethical point of view and maybe right. just some opportunistically. And maybe. So- I don't know. I actually, I mean, most of the people that we have aren't from a cryptocurrency background. It's not, this is usually their first like cryptocurrency exposure. There's a few exceptions, but, but most people are, don't come from that vein, I would say. So, so what do you look for when you're hiring someone into Team Stellar? Like, what is the perfect fit? What's your like go to? It's the same as like most companies. I mean, you want someone who's like super smart, super driven. Uh, they can get things done. They're ethical. You you want to you know someone with integrity. You know someone that is not toxic to work with. You know you want people that you know you can get along with, right? So we've done a good job at achieving that, I think. So like of all the companies I've been involved with, like these are by far like the ones that I would, would just like go hang out with, right? It's like actually really fun to work here. So I think you've learned your lessons from previous toxic relationships, clearly. <laughs> yeah, I've tried to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you hadn't. You yeah. might be the problem if you hadn't. Right. Well, I mean, you also have to, you spend so much time with your coworkers, so you definitely want them to be like people you, you are excited to see. Yeah. So. And what do you think the future of currency is? Is that like all about crypto? Like in, in 50 years, is that going to be the de facto currency? Like, is that actually how you view the world? Or give us some insight there. I definitely think everything will be on in some digital format, whether that's like... So no cash. In fifty years, probably no cash, but yeah, I mean, the, the, but but I, I don't know if I don't know if like fiat will go away completely. I mean, I think there'll probably be like tokenized dollars that are just on some blockchain somewhere that are getting shuffled around, things like that, right? So I think I think it'll be a while before. I mean, people are pretty emotionally attached to money, so I think it'll be a while before it disappears completely. Yeah, I think you're probably quite right. <laughs> so just a little bit about you. Yeah. So um, you've got two kids. And uh, like, where do you live? You live in San Francisco with them. Like, how much time do you spend? Like, what is your like working day? What's a day like for Jen? Sure, I live in Berkeley with with them. Uh, uh, it's uh, is that just to like rub some weird sort in your own wounds about leaving in the first semester. You're like, I'm now going to live uh, there. I, you know, I like Berkeley. There's a lot of plants. Yeah, it's very nice. it smells good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for having kids, like it's, it would be a little tough to raise kids in SF. How old are your kids? Nine and eight. Okay, and you got a boy and a girl, right? Yep. Cool. So yeah, what's a normal day like? It's not very exciting. Wake up, get on the BART, read on the BART, come here, and then and then leave. Yeah, it's pretty like normal. I mean, I do a lot of traveling, so that spices it up a little bit. But otherwise, it's pretty like office worker kind of stuff. And you mentioned you don't meditate, but you do like what else you do for like downtime? Are you, uh, like twenty four seven. Like, what do you think about like what like balance? So yeah, I mean, the first couple years of Stellar it worked pretty nonstop, and it's actually got pretty burned out. Work like sixteen hours a day, all this kind of stuff. It's just ridiculous. But now I'm trying to like take it a little more measured and like work a normal amount and like kind of shut down during the weekends and stuff like that. So uh, it was just unsustainable. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's it's pretty even right now. I mean, I, you know, I, I surf, I, you know, hang out with the, the little ones, hang out with friends. You know, nothing too exciting. So okay. and then yeah, hopefully off to Bali here. Yeah, exotic <laughs> world traveling as yeah. well, right? Yeah. Um, so one of the main themes of Secret Leaders and all of our guests really is that um, all of these amazing successes that people have, like highs. You know, there's yeah. also some incredible lows, and there's a lot of like uh, personal galvanization you have to do to get yourself out of those moments. Yes. Yeah. So. 
if you're willing to share, like what has been the toughest moment of your professional journey? Or have oh, there been like, yeah. yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is the invaluable stuff that people right. stay till the end for. It's like, you know, what is this person that I admire that's done amazing things? Like what's the most human experience that they've had and how did they get out of it? And what was that period like? Yeah, I mean, I've had some pretty brutal ones. <laughs> Leaving Ripple was pretty hard, to be honest. That was uh, really painful. Even like... At SDF, my, my co-founder eventually left. Uh, that was that was pretty hard too. Uh, that one that was probably the hardest. Like it just seemed basically it seemed like this was again like where we were kind of running out of money at SDF. Uh, it, we started as a nonprofit, and one of the big downsides of that is you can't just go to VCs and raise a bunch of money. We had kind of misjudged and thought that we'd be able to get it from like foundations and things like that, but that it ended up being like pretty tough for a variety of reasons to raise from them. So. The funding situation wasn't looking good. Like morale was low because the network, you know, we had to spend all this time to rebuild it. Like that was just a tough time. I mean, I think, I don't know if there's any like real secret. I just didn't give up. I was like, I'm just going to make this work. So yeah, you just kind of keep chugging along. I mean, I, and I don't know if that's even good advice because like sometimes you do need to cut bait. Like there's definitely been projects of mine where I'm like, damn, I wish I had just stopped doing this a year earlier. But in this case, it just seemed like, you know, whenever I would gut check myself and be like, Am I making a huge mistake here? I would still do the same calculation for why this network makes sense, like why this is the right time, why we have the right technology, like why this will eventually turn around, essentially. And and, and I kind of just knew if I would just stick it out, eventually it would turn around, right? So. And do you have like mentors or advisors that like help you through some of these moments? That's one of the awesome things about living in uh, Silicon Valley. Is there's just so many people out here that'll help you and like willing to talk to you. Greg Brockman, who's on our board, the former CTO of Stripe, I talked to a lot about this stuff. Keith Raboy, who's also on our board. Patrick, you know, just lots of people that would like lend an ear and like kind of help me through. So yeah, there's tons of people. Okay, so support network does like is one of the main draws of uh, of Silicon Valley in general, right? Everyone is just like super willing to help you. So it's pretty awesome. So, yeah. Okay, well, something more positive. Yeah. You know, you've been through all of that and obviously you've got loads of challenges still to come, no doubt. So, you know, you might find yourself in in similar situations again, but you know, from a resilience point of view, do you consider that stuff? Like do you think like on the one side, thank God I've been through a lot of tough shit because I <laughs> definitely know how to bounce back in the future and how to behave. And is like another part of you also like actually like being through so much tough shit, like there can't be a lot more along the way <laughs> or or do you just like not even think about the future it would be hard to be phased at this point I've, yeah there's <laughs> it's there's been some pretty dire times yeah i think i think i could handle a lot at this point so yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> got, yeah balls of steel after yeah, this one so. okay so can you just give us so like just to wrap up i guess but best piece of advice that you think you've ever been given by someone it depends on who your audience is actually but the common the best piece of advice for most people is that you should take way more risks than you do, especially if you're smart. Uh, you just know that you're going to have like lots of rolls at the dice. So like, go ahead and try something rather than just like go to law school or something. Because there's always you'll always be able to fall back on something's comfortable. I guess take a chance. Basically, is what I'm saying. Okay, so that's the best advice you can give anyone. So is that like a great advice that other people have given you as well along the way? Yeah, I think I got that early on from some people. Yeah, I guess when you're surrounded in Silicon Valley, uh, that's... Uh... This is pre-that. This is like hippies in Arkansas, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So finally, it's 2014. What do you think you'll be working on and what do you think the world looks like now? So give us like a couple of minutes uh-huh. to imagine like you're living in San Francisco, let's say. Like what's the city like? What is the world around you like? What are people doing? Like you're obviously a futurist because you're always an early adopter and you think about what's coming. So give us some idea. Sorry, what year? 20 what? 
2050. I, I was going to go 2050, but you might be pretty old by that point. Yeah, 2050. So. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I think this is this time that we're in now is like pretty freaking exciting. There's like so much. There's so much potential, like world changing things. It's really hard to look that far out. I mean, I think. I'm a big believer that we're going to see AI pretty soon and that that's going to change things pretty radically. And like the shape of that is really hard to predict because we don't actually know what it's going to look like. So uh, in 2040, I will hopefully our brains are going to be aug- augmented by computers. Otherwise, it's going to be bad. <laughs> so is what I'd say. Okay. Thank you very much, Chad. That was awesome. All right. Appreciate Thanks. it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Next week on Secret Leaders. So we're not just tackling hunger, we're, at, we're really tackling food waste, you know. More than a third of all the food produced globally goes to waste. It's the third largest contributor to climate change. It's like a catastrophe, uh, every which way you look at it. I, th- I think the potential is massive. That was Sasha Celestial One, the co-founder of the food sharing app Olio. It's one of my personal favourites. I share leftover food from my fridge almost every week, which keeps me from throwing it away all through the app. It is brilliant. And once you've heard the story of her upbringing, you'll realise she is the perfect secret leader to innovate in this space and make food waste a thing of the past. So tune in next week or you'll miss out. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by your host, that's me, Dan murray Serta, producer, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and if you've heard this, it'll probably have something to do with Jennifer Osman in Canada. You'll also notice throughout this series, we've got some beautiful illustrations made for every episode, and that's all thanks to Christina Naru of smartupvisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming Secret Leaders live events on secretleaders.com. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe on whatever media player you use. Just follow us at Secret Leaders on Instagram or at Secret Leaders One on Twitter. And tell just one friend about how freaking awesome this episode is. If you want to go the extra mile, I'm at Dan Murray Serta on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'd love to see you take some screenshots of the episode you're listening to. And-